starting today with Abraham. He is the father of the Hebrew people, and he was first called Hebrew last week in our sermon. And uh, from him comes Isaac, and then Israel, and then the 12 sons of Israel, and the group of people known as the Jews. And God's promise, as we will see in the book of Romans, is unconditional. And it will never be taken away from that group of people. So I have something special I'd like to read you. It's a poem written by an anonymous author. But whoever wrote it understood our duty as Christians to pray for the Jewish people. This is just simply called The Jew. Scattered by God's avenging hand, afflicted and forlorn, sad wanderers from their pleasant land do Judah's children mourn. And even in Christian countries, few breathe thoughts of pity for the Jew. Yet listen, Gentile, do you love the Bible's press's page? Then let your hearts with kindness move to Israel's heritage, who traced those lines of love for you. Each scared writer was a Jew. And then as years and ages passed and nations rose and fell through clouds and darkness, off were cast or captive Israel. The oracles of God for you were kept in safety by the Jew. And when the great Redeemer came for guilty men to bleed, he did not take an angel's name, no, born of Abraham's seed. Jesus, who gave his life for you, the gentle Savior, was a Jew. And though his own received him not and turned in pride away, whence in the Gentiles' happier lot, are you more just than they? No, God in pity turned to you. Have you no pity for the Jew? Go then and bend your knee to pray for Israel's ancient race. Ask the dear Savior every day to call them by his grace. Go for a debt of love is due from Christian Gentiles to the Jew. This day in history is uh, today is the 20th of May. And on this particular day in history, in 1506 in Spain, Christopher Columbus died in abject poverty. The man who had discovered the new world and uh, who was remembered to this day as one of our great heroes of America was forgotten at his death. And then in 1774, Britain's parliament passed the coercive acts to punish American colonists for their increasingly anti-British behavior. And then in the year 2012, Americans are being persecuted for their increasingly relying on their founding fathers and preaching the gospel. So you can see how things have kind of moved in an opposite direction from that time. And then in 1899, a guy named Jacob German of New York City was the first driver ever to be arrested for speeding. The speed limit was 12 miles an hour, and he was probably going 12.2 miles an hour. I don't know. But uh, anyway, kind of funny how things have progressed from there. Now, today we are going to be starting chapter 12 of Genesis, and it is the beginning, as I said, of the fourth dispensation or way of God working in human history. So far, we've seen three dispensations. The first was innocence, which covered man's very, very short time in the Garden of Eden. They were innocent until the fall. After that came the second dispensation, which was the dispensation of conscience, which went from the time that they were expelled from the Garden of Eden right up until the time of the flood of Noah. And then the third dispensation was government. And that started from the promise of God after the flood to Noah, and it went right up until the time of Abraham, which is where we are now. And this fourth dispensation is a time of promise to the sons of God. We've seen God's funnel working ever since the time of Adam. 
God chose one of Adam's sons, Seth, to establish his line, which will lead to Jesus. And then from Seth, one son has been selected from each generation, each subsequent generation, all the way down to where we are now, which is Abraham. And now throughout this entire dispensation of promise, we're going to see God validate his covenant that he is making today to Abraham. It's going to go through his son of his wife, Sarah, to Isaac, and then to his son, Jacob, who is Israel. The question for you right now is, what kind of God do we serve? Is this God changing? Is he vindictive? Does he promise and then renege? Or is God the faithful and covenant-keeping God who truly is unchanging, all-knowing, and the sovereign ruler of the universe? And we had better hope for the second option because if we are wrong, our faith is in vain. And I'm going to make some very strong points about that today. Our text verse for the, today comes from Micah 7, verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. We all have choices to make. And how immensely important is the choice, shall I take God at his word? When we do, the Bible says that it leads to life. And when we don't, there is only sadness and condemnation awaiting us. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of the day is divine directions. Now, I'm going to ask you to remember each of these thoughts because I'm making a logical progression. Where do we today get our divine directions from? From the Holy Bible. Well, at the time of Abraham, we start out with his divine directions. Now, the Lord had said to Avram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. This is known as the call of Abraham. And it actually occurred way back, we went this a few sermons ago, when he lived up at Ur by the Euphrates River. And so it goes back to that time. He is in Haran right now. Remember, he was called in Ur. He went to Haran, and now he's being called to go to the promised land. And we know that this call was back in Ur, not from the Old Testament, but you have to read it from the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was the first martyr of the Christian age, just before he was martyred, was speaking to the Sanhedrin. And here's what he said. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. In this call, Abraham, or Avram as he's called before his name is changed by God, is asked to cut three specific ties. The first is to his country. This would be just like God asking us to leave America, to renounce our citizenship, and to go to a place that he will show us. And until recently, I can't think of anybody that would want, have wanted to have left this greatest nation on God's green earth. And even now, despite the financial troubles and woes that we're facing, it is still the place of our widest range of affections. It is a place that we are comfortable in because of language, because of familiarity, because of ties, and because of heartstrings, and for a host of other reasons. The second tie that Abraham is asked to cut is his place of family. And this certainly means more than just the people in his house. It includes all of the people of his culture. You never know how much 
your surrounding culture is ingrained in you until you move to another culture. I don't know how many people have moved away from America for a while. I know several people here that have moved to America and you get what's called culture shock and it really works. Really happens, I can tell you that. When I went I, in 1990 to 1993, I moved to Malaysia and there were certain things there that were so difficult, so foreign to me that three years later when I left, I could not say that I was even close to getting used to them. One of them in particular was that if you invited somebody over to dinner, say you are at your dentist and you like this person. We had a dentist we really like named Padma. And we said, Padma, would you like to come over for dinner? She said, yeah, sure. What time? We said, come over at five o'clock. So she shows up at nine o'clock and she shows up with like six people from her family. One, we had said five and two, we had just invited her. So we'd only prepared for that many people. But there, time is irrelevant. And so here she shows up and we're like, we, we're ready for bed. We just thought she had forgotten about it. The same thing happened when we uh, invited our landlord. You know, we said, we'd like you to come over at five. They showed up at about nine o'clock and they came with just the family. But once again, we'd already put all the food away. We just figured they forgot. And then when they invited us to reciprocate, they invited us to go to their house. They said, be here at five, maybe 5.30, we'll say. And we showed up at 5.29, being prompt Americans. They hadn't even put on their clothes for eating. They hadn't even started cooking. They said, what are you doing here? He said to be here at 5.30. And literally, they're expecting us at 9 or 9.30 or something. And it's something that I still, to this day, I, I can't understand that. But that's how they work. And especially when you invite one or two people and 12 show up, it's very hard to get used to. But that's the way they do things. Now we have a third tie that Abraham is asked to cut, and that is his ties to his father's house. Now, this really is his home and family. It is his kith and kin. And included in this would be his cousins and all of the people he grew up with. It included all of the smells that he smelled when he walked through the front door of the house and the place where he put his shoes, if he wore shoes, right at the front door without even thinking about it when he came in from the field. And it might have included even a little tree that he planted when he was six and he watched the thing grow up as he got older. He is being called as a man of God, to cut all of these ties and to move to a place that he has never seen. And all the direction he has gotten is to do it and to go to this land that I will show you. And we have no idea how old he was when he received this call. But in the last chapter we looked at, his father Terah was 70 when he had his three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Actually, the first son came at 70. So it has been more than 290 years since God has spoken directly to man. The last time he did was in the year 1657 Anno Mundi, or from creation. That was in chapter 9, verse 17, when God made his covenant with Noah and all of the people that would come after him. Here's what he said. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And then he gave them the rainbow as the sign of the covenant. So like bookends on the time where God was silent, he closed his mouth speaking to man after making a covenant with Noah. And then he opens it again to direct Abraham to the covenant land that he will give him. And that covenant sign that is coming, I think it's in chapter 15, I could be wrong on that, will come later. But God now speaks and his word is a covenant in and of itself. And here is the promise that he makes to him. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Abraham is going to be rewarded 
and receive restoration for every single thing that he is giving up. He was told to leave his country, and in place of it, he's being made into a great nation. He's told to leave his family, and in place of that, he is promised to be blessed. And he was told to leave his father's house, and in place of that, he's promised that his name will be made great. If you look at what Abraham or Avram gave up and what he received, the difference is immense. He gave up a land of idolatry to inherit the covenant land of God. He left his family and he would become the father of many nations. And he left his father's house and he became the man of faith who was renowned throughout all of human history since his time. This is the way that God works in the life of those who are obedient to him. What we give up for the sake of Jesus Christ is to be counted as rubbish, as Paul says, in comparison to the glories which God will bestow upon us if we simply call out to God through Jesus Christ in faith. Nothing which is left behind, I assure you, can compare to the beauty of what is promised ahead. Jesus himself said this in the book of Matthew, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. God has spoken and he has made a promise to Avram. The only thing that we could call a condition on this promise is that he just gets up and he leaves his country, his family, and his father's house to go to the land that he'd be shown. If he does this thing, then the promise stands and it must be otherwise unconditional because the Bible says nothing else to him. If not, then this is not the creator God and Avram would have wasted his life pursuing that which was less than God. Like so many who have gone before him, and so many who have come after him, listen to this, I want you to remember this saying, misdirected faith is wasted faith. I can give you an example right now. People over on the other side of the world or in, here in America, they strap themselves with dynamite and they go blow themselves up in a shopping mall and they think that they are serving God. They have great faith, but their faith is misdirected and therefore it's wasted. Either Jesus Christ is Lord or he isn't. Either we are saved by grace through faith alone, or we are saved by grace through faith with works added. Either Christianity is true and Islam is false, or Islam is true and Christianity is false, or they're both false, but they cannot both be true. They contradict each other. Either Ellen G. White, who is the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists, was a prophet, or she was a false prophet. Either Mormonism is true and Christianity is true, or Christianity is true and Mormon is false. I'm sorry, I said true, I meant false the first time. Or they're both false. But once again, those two are irreconcilable. Mormonism and Christianity cannot both be true. Either Jesus Christ is a created being, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, or he is the eternal God. Only one can be true. Where is your faith directed? It is the most important question in the world. Because if your faith is misdirected, then you are still in your sins and only condemnation in hell awaits. You see, in the book of Numbers, we're told this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? Avram was 
asked to leave his home and to go off to a place that God would show him. And in exchange, God made him a promise. And it is an otherwise unconditional promise to him. And because it's written in what we believe is God's word, the Holy Bible, then we are asked to asked and expected to believe it just as it's written. And this is especially important because this promise of a blessing is passed on from Avram to his son Isaac, as I said earlier, and then from Isaac to his son Israel, who is Jacob when he was born. The promise to Isaac is recorded in Genesis 26, and I want to read it to you. Then the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. He's repeating what he said to Abraham. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And from Isaac, as I said, the promise goes down to his son Jacob, who is Israel. That's recorded in Genesis 28, and I'd like to read you that as well. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Once again, he's repeating what he's told his fathers. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you... And in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now the reason why I'm quoting these particular verses is because Paul brings them up again in the New Testament and he says that they still and that they always will apply to the people of Israel. In chapter 11 he says this, concerning the gospel, they, meaning the Jewish people, are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What is Paul saying here? Well, who is he speaking about? He's speaking about the Jewish people. The unbelieving Jewish people, by the way. In general, they are the nation of Israel to this day. And what does he say? They are enemies of the church because of the gospel. This is very clear. An unbelieving Jew is no different than any other unbeliever. If they don't hold to the gospel, they are the gospel's enemies and thus the enemies of those who hold to the gospel. One plus one equals two. That's very simple to understand. But Paul doesn't stop there like so many scholars say he does. And replacement theology is something that says that the church has replaced Israel and that Israel is out of the covenant graces of God. For them, it's just so long, baby. But how someone can come to that conclusion is mystifying. They actually have to stop in the middle of the verse I read. What is Paul saying elsewhere in Romans? Just a little further down, he says, concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Well, who are the fathers? 
They are Abraham, they are Isaac, they are Jacob, they are the 12 sons of Israel, and even David is called a patriarch or a first father in the book of Acts. Israel is beloved because of the promises that were made to these people. They are the elect of God. If they are elect, then they cannot be cast off as a corporate body, only individually when they reject Jesus Christ. And God still must and does have a plan and a purpose for them. Why? Because just as Paul explains in the same verse, it's because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And this is important for us to understand because if I say I'm calling on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and that can be revoked, then that means you have no assurance of eternal salvation. But the Bible says that when you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your sins are cleansed. They are washed away. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Israel is being used as a microcosm or a picture of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ to the whole world. Anybody who has read and studied chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans and cannot see this clearly has been blinded. And there are three possible ways that a person is blinded. Either they were blinded by God during Israel's time of punishment. It's thoroughly excusable to me that Martin Luther wouldn't understand this or that John Calvin wouldn't understand this because all they see is a couple scattered Jews around the world and there's no holy land for them to live in. They've been dispersed. I can understand that. Just as the Jews were blinded to bring salvation to the Gentiles, so were the Gentiles blinded from what God was going to do through the Jewish people. The second possibility would be an unwillingness to open their eyes to what God has done in human history. In 1948, reestablishing the Jewish nation. And then in 1967, returning Jerusalem to the Jewish nation. So they're not wanting to understand because of the teaching they got. They'd rather hold to the teachings that they'd received than look at what God is doing in human history. And there is a third possibility, and I bring this up from time to time. It's just simply anti-Semitism. I hate the Jews, and I don't want to believe that God has anything to do with them. And I would pray that's not the case, but I can tell you it's much more prevalent in the church than we may realize. There is a lot of anti-Semitism out there, but God has chosen them, and we cannot work against them without suffering our own consequences. The only time that a covenant like this can be broken is when it is conditional. And this covenant to Abraham and all of the other ones that he is giving are unconditional unless they say otherwise. But people know better than Paul and people know better than God, or they think they do. And so they take the church and they insert the church where it does not belong and they take Israel out of these promises. So what we need to do is to remember this, especially in our nation today, where we are so close to turning our blessing upon the people of Israel into a curse. The nation who fights against God's elect is the nation that will disappear in fire and destruction. I'm certain of that. God has sovereignly chosen to plant Israel once again into their land. So the question is, who would we be fighting against if we decide that they are not worth fighting for? The answer is God. Verse 3 continues, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This verse, this half of verse 3 is fulfilled in two ways. First is through the line of Abraham, which would become the Jewish people. Through this line have come, as we read in that poem, the very oracles of God, the Holy Bible. With just a few exceptions, the entire book, the Bible, every 
book within the Bible and every uh, the saving of every book was either written or saved by the Jewish people. And from them as well have come wonderful blessings which have graced the entire world. They are a little bit less than 2% of 1% of the population of the world. And yet they have made up 20% of last century's Nobel Peace Prizes. That is an amazing achievement for such a small group of people. And the areas which they have lagged behind in these awards are subjective areas, like the Peace Prize, where you can take an ungodly person and you can make an ungodly decision about an ungodly issue. It's a subjective area. But when put side by side with real human achievement, the Jewish people have excelled in literature, in chemistry, in medicine, in physics, in economics, and in every other major discipline that these awards are awarded in. Apart from the Jewish people as a whole, though, but still part of the Jewish people, is Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the blessing given to Abraham. He is the ultimate Jewish person. He is the Messiah who came from the seed of Abraham and in whom truly the entire world is blessed. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is obedience to the word. We have divine directions, and now we have obedience to those divine directions. Verse four, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. He is being obedient to the word which he was given. It's probably good to note that the word of the Lord at the time of Abraham is the same as the word of the Lord today. The only difference is that instead of coming in dreams and in visions and prophetic utterances, it now comes in the pages of the Holy Bible. And I believe that this is the only way that we receive the word of the Lord. People will disagree with me, but I believe this is what we have as God's testimony to the people of the world. Put that down so I don't swing it around too much. Do you know that the Bible has rules about the conduct of a church? For example, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we are given specific rules about the speaking of tongues in a congregation. And do you know that most tongue-speaking congregations don't obey those rules? So I'm going to give you something to think about. If the Bible has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit, as the Bible states, and the Holy Spirit is the one who has given guidance for speaking in tongues, then you can know, you can know this 100% for certain, that if a church is not obeying the rules which are given, then the tongues are not divinely inspired. They did not come from the Holy Spirit. One plus one equals two. Don't be led astray in your thinking by people who would rather make a show than rely on what the Bible teaches. It isn't complicated. Abraham was given a word from the Lord and he obeyed. We likewise have the word from the Lord and we obey or we disobey. And if we disobey, we do it at our own loss. If we can't get such simple things straight like speaking in tongues in a church, then how can we get the weightier matters which affect our very souls right? Like the Trinity, like the deity of Jesus Christ and some very, very important issues, the all-sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ. How can we understand something complicated when we can't get speaking tongues right in a congregation? We need to be very careful about how we look at this book. If you want to be remembered by God as a person of faith, then all you need to do is obey the word of the Lord 
just as our father Abraham did. Verse 4 continues, And Avram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He was born, as we said last week, in the year 2009 from creation, and his father died in the year 2084 when he was 75 years old. Once his father was dead, Avram left Haran, and off to the promised land he went. Verse 5, Then Avram took Sarai and his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Avram is now the leader of the family. He leads the way in this new adventure. Their father, Terah, died, oh, so very close to the promised land, back up in the land of Haran. And how many people are just like him? They start their journey of faith, but they never finish it. They study about Jesus, they hear what they need to do, but they never make that final leap into his protective care. And so they remain forever outside of the grace of God. And I'm going to give you an, a lesson or a, an example of that after we're done today. But Abraham and his wife and Lot and everything they had, including human servants, picked up and departed to Canaan, the land of servants. And the Bible says they arrived safely too. Now, when I was in Malaysia, there was a very sizable portion of India Indians who lived there. They were 8% of the population. The blacks in America make about 12% of our population, but the India Indians in Malaysia made up about 8% of the population. When Malaysia was being colonized by the Brits, they had already colonized India many years before. Some of the wealthy landowners from India picked up and they saw the opportunity to go to this new colony. And when they did, they took their favorite servants with them. Now the Brits eventually left Malaysia, but the Indians who stayed and worked in the, the tea plantations and were servants in the people's homes, they stayed behind. And so this is one way that the people of the world get around. Some move by choice and some move by force. Verse six, Avram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. After entering Canaan, Avram went as far as a place called Shechem. This location is key to the Bible in both Testaments. It's between two mountains. One mountain's called Mount Gerizim, and one is called Mount Ebal. Here is where God first met with Avram. It is the spot where Israel's daughter Dinah is going to be raped, and then his two Two of his sons, his second and his third son, Simeon and Levi, go in and they kill the entire population of males in the town of Shechem because they, the people in the town defiled their sister. It's also the spot where Joseph's bones would be buried after Israel came out of Egypt. And it became a town later which belonged to the Levites, which means that it was a priestly town within the people of Israel. And then after Israel divided into two nations, Judea and Israel, the 10 northern tribes, it became the capital of those 10 tribes. It's also the town in the New Testament known as Sichar, where Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. And most people know that story. It's in John chapter four. The history of this place is very rich and it goes all the way back through the ages to the time of Avram and where he first met with God in the promised land. There in Shechem, Avram stopped at Alan Moreh, or the terebinth tree of Moreh. Now, some translations will say the oak of Moreh, or I think the King James Version says the plain of Moreh. can mean different things. The word Moreh, though, means teacher. And in a moment, we will see where that name came from 
and who this teacher is. And that brings us to our third thought, which is a promised possession. We have divine directions, we have obedience to the word, and now we have a promised possession. Verse seven, then the Lord appeared to Avram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. This verse is one of the most important to know and to understand of any that you will come across in the entire Bible. By it, you can continue dating history from the beginning of creation. By it, you can understand how long the people of Israel actually dwelt in the land of Egypt. And it's not 430 years the way that most people think. By it, you can understand the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, apart from the law. This one verse will tell you all of those things. So much is tied up in this one verse that if we were doing a Bible study right now, we could spend hours and hours on it. The Lord appeared to Avram. What does that exactly mean? It is the first time that this phrase occurs in the entire Bible. And I believe that it is a divine visitation by the master of time and space, Jesus Christ. Numerous times in the Old Testament, the Lord appears to people in human form. He will show up now with Abraham. He'll show up a little bit later with Abraham. He's going to show up to Joshua, he's gonna show up to the parents of Samson, he's gonna show up to a guy named Gideon, and other times as well. And I believe that it is the eternal Christ that is presenting himself to each one of these people. Yes, this may sound goofy, but I believe that Jesus Christ appears in his own past, and he directs human history, which leads to himself. When he came to Avram, he made an unconditional promise. To your descendants, I will give this land. There's nothing tied up in the promise and it is God's land to parcel out. We will see how this promise will be made true throughout the rest of the Bible. This verse is so important that Paul cites it in Galatians chapter three and he uses it to say that it points to the work of Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God, before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Verse seven continues, and there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. After receiving this promise from God, Abraham built an altar to the Lord there. The spot where the Lord stood is hallowed by his presence, and he acknowledges this by building an altar. In the building of this altar, he is making an open profession of his faith to Jehovah, and he is establishing the worship of the one true God on the soil of the promised land. And he is also declaring faith in the promise that he has just been given. We could equate this building of an altar with our accepting the rite of baptism after accepting Jesus Christ. It is an open profession of faith. When I take somebody out there and I baptize them out there, they're saying, I want to publicly acknowledge that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing right here. Here at the terebinth tree of the teacher, Avram met the great teacher who would be recognized with that exact title, teacher, more than 40 times in the New Testament Gospels. Verse eight. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. After leading the shade, leaving the shade of this terebinth tree, Avram moved to a mountain which is east of Bethel and which is west of I. 
Bethel means house of God, and it will become a very important place throughout the Bible. As I said a few moments ago, it is the place where Jacob saw the ladder reaching to heaven. And guess what Jesus says in the book of John, the first chapter of the book of John, he says, that ladder is me. You will see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on me. And the other town, I, means a heap of ruins. This spot where he now is, is a picture of our own life on earth. The house of God, Bethel, is a picture of heaven. And the heap of ruins, which is I, is a picture of hell. Avraham, or Avram, is between the two of them, having pitched his tent. Pitching one's tent means that you are a temporary pilgrim on your way to somewhere else. Avram is a picture of us. We are pilgrims in the land of servants. And we can serve one of two things. I've said this several times. We can either serve God or we can serve sin. They're the only two choices. So we are pilgrims here and we are between heaven and hell. Will we be a servant of the Lord and ascend the ladder, which is Jesus, to heaven? Or are we going to be a servant of sin and be destroyed in I, the heap of ruins? All of us have a choice to make and we need to make it before our last breath leaves our body. Verse 8 continues. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Avram knew that the only house where divine protection can be realized is a house where the proper worship of God is established. And that is a lesson for each one of us here, especially when we have children in the house. When we honor God in our own homes, we are safe and secure. If we don't, then we have our own troubles at our own perils and our own loss. And so Avram built an altar and called on or he invoked the name of God. By invoking the name of the Lord there, he is acknowledging that the Lord is the mediator between him and God. This is why the Lord appeared to him at the terebinth of the teacher. Jesus is the one and only mediator between us and God. And somehow Avraham knew this. And it's explained explicitly in the New Testament book of Timothy, where Paul writes that there is, one, or maybe it's Hebrews, I'm sorry, I think it's Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Verse 9, so Avram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now we're going to finish up today with this verse. Avram was a pilgrim in the land of servants, and after meeting the great teacher, Jesus Christ, he heads towards the south. I hope you have seen how rich these nine verses about Avram are and the beautiful pictures and symbols that they contain. They all, and the entire Bible, points to the work of Jesus Christ and his life going through time and history as it carefully works out a plan of redemption for all of mankind. He has given us pictures of paradise in these nine verses. He's given us pictures of hell. And he has shown us the way to obtain the former and to avoid the latter. In the end, what he asks for is simple faith. That's all. Jesus asks us to believe that he is who he said he is, and he has done what he said he has done. If we can just believe that, if we can believe the promises that he has made, then he will safely carry us to the home which he has prepared for us. Avram built an altar where the Lord had been, and he continued to worship the Lord as he traveled. For some of us, Jesus Christ has already tread upon our hearts. And so we need to consecrate our hearts to him as an altar worthy of his greatness. 
and some of you ha may not have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want to take just a minute and I want to give you an object lesson about how you can do that. Um, I was watching, has anybody here seen Indiana Jones and the Temple, the, the Last Crusade? There you go. It's the one where the, they're looking for the chalice that held Christ's blood in it. And as I was watching the end of it, I realized, I'm sitting here saying that the gospel message is included in this particular set of passages. What it is, is there are three challenges that Indiana Jones has to go through before he gets to the chalice. And we'll equate the chalice with the blood of Jesus Christ, it being the blood. The first challenge is, the only clue in there is the penitent man may pass. And here we have this machine, this cunningly devised machine that comes out of nowhere and it cuts people's heads off when they're not paying attention. And so the penitent man, the man who is humble before God, he gets down, will pass. And as he's going there, he's thinking about this. He's thinking about how to get through this particular cunning device. And at the last second, he says, penitent, he's humble before God. He gets on his knees and he jumps through it and the thing doesn't kill him. So he has reasoned out what is going on in life that there is a God and I need to be humble before him. But then he comes to the second challenge and all it is is the name of God. How do you know the name of God? And there's all these letters that are laid out in front of him on these stones. And as he's walking along looking at these stones, he's saying the name of God, the name of God. And there's all these names of God and then he realized it must be speaking of the eternal God. I am who I am, Jehovah. And so he says, I know how that goes. And he steps on I believe a Y thinking it's, or I'm sorry, a J thinking it's Jehovah. And he starts to go through and you see down there, there's this giant chasm, which is like a picture of hell. Okay. He stepped on the wrong one because in the Latin, Jehovah begins with an I. So he gets his foot over there and he steps on the I and then he steps on the rest of the letter. So now the penitent man who understands that there is a God now understands the name of that God. And he understands that there is one way to get to that God. And that's by following properly his word. And then he comes to the final challenge and he walks to this giant chasm and it's so deep that you can't see the bottom of it. And it has got on the other side, the cave where the golden ch or the chalice of Christ is. And it's so far away. It would be like me being able to jump from over to that fence way over there. Impossible. It is impossible that any human being, even with a jumping start, could get over there. And the only clue he's given is that it is a leap of faith. That's it. It's a leap of faith. And so what does he do? He says, I have the knowledge and I have the right God. I'm just going to have to put my trust in him. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to do it. He puts his hand over his heart and he sticks his foot out. And he lands on solid ground. And then the camera swings off to the side. And you see this this walkway that was impossible to see because it matched the wall on the other side. And when you come to make that leap of faith in Jesus Christ, everything becomes instantly clear that was not clear before. And you look over and you can see that you're standing on solid ground when in fact you thought you were going to go into an abyss. And that is what Jesus Christ asks us to do is to simply demonstrate faith in him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And I'm going to say, I accept that. Whether I can fully reason it out or not, I'm going to make that leap of faith. And all of a sudden, when you do, and I assure you this is true, everything comes into clear focus. So that is what God expects of us, is to make that last leap of faith. 
all the head knowledge in the world is not going to save you. I know professors that teach Bible, that teach Hebrew, that aren't any closer to God than any pagan in the rest of the world. And I know people that know the name of God and they know how to t talk about God. They stand in pulpits and they have no faith in their heart for this. But that final leap of faith, everything clears up and it is eternal. You can never lose the knowledge of God once you have received it. And if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are eternally saved. The Bible says that even now you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. I would pray, if this is so, that you would dedicate your life to acknowledging that fact by placing him properly on the altar of your own heart to the glory of God who saved you. Here is our poem of the week. It's called The Call of Abraham. Now the Lord had said to Avram, a directive I have for you. Get out of your country and from your family too. And depart from your father's house, my son. Yes, leave everything behind. I want you to leave because you are the one. You are a great part of the plan I have designed. Off to a land that I will show you. There I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. This is what I'll do. But you must first start on this great migration. I will make your name great. My promise is true and you shall be a blessing. I will curse him who curses you. There will be no second guessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Avram departed, and for the journey he was dressed. He departed as the Lord had spoken, taking along no doubt. And Lot went with him, as did his wife and others too. He was 75 years old when they headed out. So to the place of Haran, the company bid adieu. Off to the land of Canaan, Avram did head away. And they arrived in that land, the land of promise. They passed through to Shechem, and there they did stay. Avram was of faith, not a doubting Thomas. There at the Terebinth of Moray, with Canaanites all around, the Lord appeared to him, saying, To your descendants I give this piece of ground. So he built an altar to the Lord whom he met there. Yes, he built an altar on that very spot. He acknowledged his mediator, the one who handles prayer. And so should we do the same with contemplative thought. Avram then moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and there he pitched his tent, Bethel on the west. And to the east was I, a picture of the place called Hell. Avram was a pilgrim on the earth, but he passed the test. There he called on the name of the Lord and clung faithfully to God's holy word. So Avram journeyed, going on still toward the south, and surely as he went, the praise of the Lord was in his mouth. We remember Avram, this man of faith, whose faith was great, and each of us should surely follow in his path. Let us love the Lord with all our heart and let us patiently wait for the coming of Jesus who keeps us from God's wrath. Yes, let us love our Lord and give him all our praise. Let us serve the King and glorify him all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. And I would pray that if anybody here has never called Jesus Christ, with just simple faith, the faith of a child, that today would be the day they say, I need Christ to forgive me. I am infinitely separated from an infinite creator by my finite sins, and I need an infinite mediator, one that can put his finite human hand on my head and his infinite, glorious, divine hand on his Father and bridge that gap. I ask that I receive it in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen.